Yes? Okay, perfect. Well, happy Father's Day. Today we celebrate Father's Day, and I hope to answer the proverbial question, is it okay for a father to sneak a cookie into bed, or for a child to sneak a cookie into bed? That's better. Is it okay for a child to sneak a cookie into bed while hiding it from mom, but sharing it with dad? And no, you should never do that. Generally, generally speaking, I think dads get a bad rap. We are perceived as absent-minded, sometimes forgetful, a little bit oblivious to our surroundings, what's happening around us, sometimes even accused of being physically or emotionally detached, incapable of parenting. Now, our wives may, as an example, ask us to go do a run at the grocery store. This is just an example. And there's only three items, but you say, let's write it down so we don't forget. But it's only three items, but please write it down. So we write it down, three items. And you get to the store, what happens? Men, you've lost the list, no? And so what you try to do is you try to buy a little bit of extra goods in order to make up, but it wasn't just the three to make up. And you get home, and what happens? you're still missing one of those three items. And your wife says, oh, you're missing, you've forgotten. You're like, no, I, I didn't forget. It, it wasn't on the list. And she says, show me, show me the list. <laughs> but see, not all criticism is unjustifiable. Um, dads, we, we are not perfect. We, we do make mistakes. Uh, in my high school yearbook, uh, one of the quotes that um, I wrote or I left or I was, uh, I, I'm not conceited, I'm just perfect. Now, we know that I'm not perfect. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. Um, ask my three kids. I, I don't think any dad, any parent here wakes up in the morning thinking, you know, today, I really want to really mess this up. How, how am I going to blow it today? But when we can learn from our mistakes, when we can learn from our mistakes, and more importantly, from the mistakes of others, we don't want to improve. We don't want to, we don't want to repeat them. We, we, want, we want to improve, right? And sometimes our actions and our inactions are going to influence the decisions that our children make. So I think it's very important that we do everything possible to see our children grow strong physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Now, regarding their spiritual growth, there was an article, a survey done by Touchtone, and it was called The Truth About Church and Men. In terms of church attendance, only one in 50 children will attend church if the father does not attend church regularly, even if the mother attends church regularly. If the father attends church regularly, even if the mother does not, between 66 and 75% of children become regular church goers, both regular and irregular. So that suggests to me that the father has an important role to play in the spiritual development of their children. But how is that possible if the father is not present? What do I mean? Well, according to the same study, 33% of children nationally, this is the U.S., 33% of children nationally and 60% in the African-American community have families where the father is absent. And so based on these statistics, this will clearly impact the spiritual growth of our children. Fathers need to be present. Furthermore, a study called Mama Says, I love that, Mama Says, Mama Says, it's a national survey of mothers' attitudes on fathering. Mothers were provided a list of four common places where fathers could go and get help to be better dads. Four places, churches, schools, 
community, community organizations, and workplace. 80% of mothers selected church as their top choice for dad to become a better parent. That's the place they would want them to go. Even if mothers who said they were not very religious or not at all religious made church the number one place where they want fathers to go to become better dads. So what I did, and by the way, these studies and the outline for what I hope to present this morning comes from this book. It is called Bad Dads of the Bible, Eight Mistakes Every Good Dad Can Avoid by Roland Warren. And he is the former president of the National Fatherhood Initiative, currently president and CEO of CareNet. It's the nation's largest uh, network for pregnancy resource centers. He's been on Oprah, Today Show, CNN, Focus. Every fantastic book for fathers. Mums, you don't know what to get your dad for Father's Day? You forgot? Hey, you can even buy one for next year and give it to him now. All right? I have one extra copy. I went, on, I went on Amazon this week to buy this. Okay? There was only one left. I clicked on it. Um, so fast that I sent it to Nancy's credit card. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> but I've, this was an extra one. So the first person to come up after the service and tell me how wonderful this morning was, you'll get this. Okay, that'd be great. Just come up, tell me you want this. It's yours. It's a gift from us. So that's the outline. So eight mistakes every dad can avoid. I'm going to look at two of them this morning. And this is the what of my sermon. Okay. I want us to look at the bad fathers, or some of the two of the bad fathers of the bad, two of the bad fathers of the Bible who made some bad parenting mistakes, specifically mistakes that can be avoided. Pretty simple. They made some mistakes. Let's learn from them. Let's avoid them. That's the what I want to do. This is why I want to do it. And I'm taking a quote. I was trying to paraphrase this, but the words are just so perfectly constructed that anything I do to try to paraphrase just didn't work. So I'm taking this straight out of the book. This is the why of what we're doing this morning. The relationship that children have with their earthly fathers. You following me? The relationship that children have with their earthly fathers will have a direct and lasting impact on their ability to relate to God as father. So when our children look at us, when they look at me, when they look at you, and moms, you can include yourself, even though it's Father's Day in here. When they look at us, do they see an unconditional, loving, heavenly Father? So how do we interact with our spouses? Or with their mothers? Because clearly some men are going to be divorced. And you still have custody, and you still have to see another spouse or an ex-spouse. How do we interact, even in those situations? What do our children see in terms of the decisions we make, in terms of the choices we make? Because if we as fathers are distant, right, emotionally uh, not present, incapable of giving them a hug, incapable of saying that we love them, uh, unable to apologize when we're clearly wrong, or if we're distracted, too busy with work, or traveling too much for business because, oh, somebody's got to be the breadwinner, or if we're always in front of the computer, or if we're always in front of our phone, or when we're speaking to them, there's always somebody more important in the room then guess what? We're going to be disconnected. We're not going to know what's going on in their lives or who their friends are at school or who they're hanging out with or what's going on, what's important to them. And that's what they're going to have in terms of an image, and it's going to be a false image of a heavenly father because they're going to think that God is distant, that God is distracted, that God is disconnected because that's how we as fathers behave. And so what I've done this morning is up here you see the, the text that I'd like to look at to read through this morning. And they've given me extra time by the grace of God. I don't know how this is, but we're going to take our time this morning. And we're going to look through it. And I, I encourage you to open up your Bible because you're not going to see the text up here. This is just the footnote of what we're going to be looking at. So you need a Bible. You need a Bible app. Because as we go through this, I'm hoping that God's going to speak to you. I'm hoping that there's going to be a verse that you're going to go, Oh, God's speaking to me right now in that moment. And you're going to want to highlight it, or you're going to want to underline it. Or maybe we're going to go over something that's a little quick, and you're going to be so excited, you're going to get home tonight, and you're going to want to read it again, or read it through the week, and you want to come back to it. And that's the, the, the power and the truth of the Word of God. And that's what my prayer is this morning, that God's really going to speak to all of us through these scriptures and through these verses. I'm still in the introduction, by the way. Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 9. 
Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others that you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Look at the symbolism of these ver- in these verses. Let's begin by comparing bread with a stone. When I say bread, what do you think of? Baguette? Is that our baguette? Sure, physical nourishment. Right? Um, food. We eat bread. Uh, Maybe some of us think of uh, the spiritual life, Christ's body, right? Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 35 said, I am the bread of life. And that, so that's bread, soft, mobile, physical and spiritual nourishment. Think about a stone as we're contrasting them. A stone, it, it could be used as a weapon. It's round, it has sharp edges. People were stoned to death with stones, right? Think about Stephen as he stood up and as he, as he spoke, as he preached, as he Right? A brutal method of execution. <laughs> Don't get any ideas. There was a symbol of, of judgment, death, and destruction. So it is clear that bread and stones have different purposes. And, and the same is true for a fish and a snake. Like bread, a fish is a source of nourishment. But it also symbolizes Christian faith. And oftentimes you see the symbol of a fish on the back of a person's car. That person is announcing to the world that they are of the Christian faith. And then you see them drive on the sidewalk. Jesus told the disciples what? To be fishers of men. On the other hand, you have a serpent. A symbol of evil, of death, of destruction, similar to a stone. And Jesus in these verses is saying, if you, as parents, as fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children, even though you are evil, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So when we provide our children with good gifts, both physical and emotional, how much easier will it be for them to accept gifts from a good and perfect heavenly Father? That's the why of my sermon this morning. Because the relationship that children will have with their early fathers, earthly fathers, will have a direct and lasting impact on their ability to relate to God as father. End quote. And what is the greatest gift? We touched on this a little bit this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We are thankful to God for he did all the work. He loved, he gave, we believe, we live. Thankful to God who restores all of the beauty. So let's now begin with our first lesson this morning. And it comes from a reading of 2 Samuel chapter 13. And I will give you a second to turn there. In the book called Bad Dads of the Bible by Roland, Roland tells a story about how when he was a teenager, he was a believer. He carried his Bible around everywhere he went. Um, He shared the gospel with anybody who'd want to listen to him. He he went to youth group. Uh, He loved Jesus. And then one day his girlfriend gets pregnant. And there was this sense of guilt, there was a sense of shame, uh, mirrored in hypocrisy. And he goes on to say about how his own father and his own life was distant. And how Roland decided that he wanted to do things differently for his family. And one of the things that he says in the book is, you can control your actions, but you can't control consequences of your actions. You can control your actions, but you can't control consequences of your actions. And he would would, uh, be the father of two children, Still married to the same, uh, the same girl that got pregnant when they were teenagers. Married, more children. Um, and, and as his kids got older, as they became teenagers, 
And um, he was a little bit worried that maybe his children would make the same mistake. And you all know that conversation of the birds and the bees. And uh, he, he was worried that to have that, that conversation, that there would be this sense of hypocrisy. Now, the, he goes on to define the difference between hypocrisy and spiritual growth. Hypocrisy is don't do what I am currently doing. Don't do what I'm currently doing. I'm doing something wrong, but it's not good for you. Don't do it, even though you see me doing it. That's hypocrisy. Spiritual growth is, this is what I did. This is what I learned from God. This is why it was wrong in God's sight. And this is why I won't do it again. That's the context. Hypocrisy versus spiritual growth. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. And let me, let me just preface one other thing. This is probably portion of scripture or storytelling in scripture that I, I, I dislike the most. It, it is the one that I am most uncomfortable with, uh, but, but there is a lesson in this, okay? So I'm just, I'm just prefacing that before we begin to read. 2 Samuel chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother. That's his cousin, okay? This is Absalom, Amnon's cousin. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, Look so haggard morning after morning. Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon laid down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some bread in my sight, so I might eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight, and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here in my bedroom so my, I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, Don't force me. Such a thing not be, should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called her personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Clearly, this is a dysfunctional family. And the father is not emotionally present. 
I uh, actually, you know, we read that pretty quick, and then I said, okay, how do I summarize this? So I wrote my little, you know, there's the word indictment was on TV this week, so I wrote my own indictment, a uh, formal written statement, right, when you want to prosecute somebody. And this is what I charge Amnon with, as I, just, as I was looking through the verses. Verse 1, Amnon did not truly love his half-sister Tamar. Two, he, verse 2, he allowed his sexual desire to get out of control to frustrate him to the point of illness. Three, he came up with a horrible plan with his cousin to rape his half-sister. His cousin said he looked haggard, meaning he, he, the older brother, looked exhausted and unwell because he could not lie with his half-sister. Verse 6, he lied to his father about being sick. sick. Verse 7, he asked his father to request that his sister Tamar prepare him food under the false pretense that he was sick. Verse 9, he refused to eat the food that was prepared for him, and then he clears the room. He applies physical force and overpowers her in verse 12. He's unconcerned about his future position as king, verse 13. He's unconcerned about his sister's future disgrace, verse 13. He refused to listen to her plea and raped her, verse 14. His love, which was not true love to begin with, turned to intense hate, verse 15. Completely unsympathetic to her plea to stay, verse 16. Had her physically removed from the room, verse 17. Unwilling to console her, verses 18 to 20. And then we read that Tamar lives with her brother Absalom as a desolate woman, implying that she never recovered from this tragedy. Now, as I read these verses, and I told you they were uncomfortable, I just want you to reflect on this story. I want you to think about this historical account. And I want you right now just to tap, even the fathers, okay, especially the fathers right now, I want you to tap into the emotions that you are feeling right now as, I've, as we've read this story, as we've read the indictment, as all these things that have gone wrong. Or pretend that these are your children. Or this is the children of a brother or a sister. And just, just think of one word, just one word right now that you are feeling. Think of one word that you are feeling right now as you've read all of this. Share it. Pauling. Diabolic. Diabolic. Any others? Violated. Violated. Sad. 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 Evil. 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 Angry. Angry. Okay. Tap into that. They're all good answers because that's how you're feeling. Now think about how would you have responded as a father, as an uncle, as a parent, as a friend, if you heard something like this go on, what would be your response to it? How would you have, this is rhetorical, you don't need to answer this, but how would you have intervened? What would you have said? What would you do? As a father, what would you do? I was disgusted as I read this. Look at how, um, in verse 20, Absalom, Tamar's brother, he reacts. He says, it was the brother, the, half, the other brother, who consoles her. It's he who puts his arm around her. He wipes away her tears. His heart is broken. He says in verse 20, don't take, don't take, this, uh, don't take this to heart, he tells her. And so now let's think about, as a father, you've got, you know what your response would be to this? You've got that in your mind? You know how you're going to respond? Or what you think you'd say or do? All right, in verse 21, this is how David responds. Are you ready? This is what scripture says. It's right here. I'm not making it up. It says, he was furious. Three words. He was furious. That's all we read. He, he was furious, but he does nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nothing? I mean nothing. Zilch. It's not that the, 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 the print ran out on my printer this morning. Nope. He was furious, but he did absolutely nothing. In the Old Testament, the law required that a man, a man, this is the Old Testament, the law required a man that rapes a virgin to marry her and never divorce her. That was the law, Leviticus 20.10. You can read it. That's how it was back then. I said historical account. David's furious, but he says nothing. Sin, what you, son, what you did to your sister, it was deplorable. You need to change your heart. You need to ask God for forgiveness. You need to apologize to her. You need to beg. Uh, you need to ask her hand in marriage. I demand it. The law says it. That's what the law requires. No, not a word. 
It was even in Tamar's original plea in verse 13, when she said, Amnon, speak with the king. He will not keep me from marrying you. Nothing happens. David is silent. What a tragedy, sad, angry, frustrated, evil, diabolic. Those are the words. How would we respond differently? What does he do? He's frustrated, but he does nothing. Two years of silence. Two years of silence. Verse 23, we didn't read it. Verse 23 says, two years of science, silence and a blind eye pass when Absalom, the other brother, comes up with a plan. And this is what happens when there's indifference in a father's leadership in the home. Absalom's anger and hatred has been building up for two years. Absalom in the story is the only one who consoles his sister. We don't read about David. And it's Absalom who convinces his dad, King David, to send Abnon to see the sheep shearers. And while he's there, the brother gets the other brother drunk and he orders his men to kill him. The brother takes revenge. It's the brother who kills the brother for what they did to the half-sister. Not David. This is the brother, the son of David. And then years later in a battle, Absalom, trying to take his father's throne, he's killed. His anger obviously did not subside with the death of his brother, but was now directed to his dad, the king. And these events are just tragic. Tamar is raped by her half-brother, Abnon. Abnon is killed by his brother, Absalom. Absalom is killed in battle trying to take his father's throne. And Tamar never recovers emotionally. She's a desolate woman, which means she had dismal emptiness. And what about the hearts of the mothers in the story? We don't read anything, but we can just imagine how they're feeling. And what about the siblings who are living this, witnessing this? Two years of silence and then anger and drunkenness and murder and everybody is torn from this tragedy. Why? Because David was frustrated but failed to act. No correcting, no rebuking, no consoling, total lack of fatherly leadership, completely absent. This is a man after God's own heart. It is a, a man after, Scripture says, it's a man after God's own heart. This is who God chose. This is who God anointed. But man, what an epic failure in this particular situation. And why do you fail to act? Why did he fail to act? Let me suggest that is because he had made a similar mistake in the past. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, I'll ask you to turn there very quickly. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning, I'll, just, I'll, 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 read, I'll read my summary or my indictment because that's just where I was as I was putting this together. In verse 1, David never went to war, but he stays in Jerusalem. In verse 4, David sends messengers to get Bathsheba, even though he knew he, even though David knew that she was already married, he slept with her. Verse 5, Bathsheba announces to David that she's pregnant. Verses 6 through 11, David is encouraging Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to spend a night with his wife. Go back. Spend the, night with, spend the night with your wife, David says. David says to Bathsheba's husband, wants you to spend a night with your wife so that Uriah would sleep with her, she'd be pregnant, and they would think it was Uriah who was the dad and not David. But Uriah, he, he refuses, and to, he, he, won't, he won't sleep with his wife while his men are still in battle. So David, in verse 12, says, spend an extra night. And they eat, he gets them drunk. Uriah refuses to sleep at home. David writes a letter to Uriah in verse 14, put him in battle, put him in the front where it's most dangerous, most vulnerable, where the fighting is the fiercest, he says. Verse 15, he tells him, get your men to withdraw. Verse 17, Uriah is dead, murder has been committed. Maybe this is why David was scared to have the talk with his son Amnon. Maybe he was worried about how his son would react. Son, Amnon, you know, what you did was terribly, terribly wrong in the sight of God and before this family. Dad, who are you to criticize me? 
<laughs> Did you forget how you treated Bathsheba? And how you had her, her husband killed? And do you remember what the law says, Dad? It says that if you committed rape or adultery with, with, uh, with a woman who was married, you, you were, the law required that you, you be killed. You should be dead. Who are you, Dad, to tell me what to do or not to do? And history almost repeats itself in this story. Because the issue wasn't dealt with. Because father and son, they make similar mistakes. Lesson number one from the book. Don't be paralyzed by past failure. Don't be paralyzed by past failure. Hypocrisy is don't do what I am currently doing. Spiritual growth says this is what I did. This is what I learned. This is what was wrong in God's sight. This is why I don't do it again. I, I wonder, did, did David ever speak to his sons about his past failures? I mean, this could have been a wonderful teaching opportunity. I wonder if some parents, you know, scared to have the, the talk, the sexual purity talk because of their past mistakes. And the same is true regarding all vices. It's not just sexuality or pornography or smoking or drinking. Imagine if David had taken the time to read his son Absalom, the confession he wrote to God in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my inequity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Tragedy may have been avoided if David had taken the courage to speak truth into his children's lives, owning up to his mistakes and using them as a teaching opportunity. Yes, son, I screwed up. I should have never spent that night with Bathsheba. I should have never been on that balcony. I should have kept my eyes pure. I should have never have tried to cover up my mistakes. I should have taken accountability for it. You know, son, I live with the pain every day of knowing what I did was wrong. Even taking another man's life. You know, every night it keeps me awake. I can't, I can't, I can't sleep. I, I regret the pain that I caused that family and his widowed life. I'm a broken man because of it. Uh, I plead to God for mercy. I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize I sin only against God and God alone. But you know what, son? His love is unfailing. You know what, son? He is full of compassion. You know what, son? All of my sins are, are, are blotted out. He's cleansed me from everything, all of my inequity. And every day now, I try to live for his glory. I'm not, I'm not perfect, son, but you know what? I'm going to die trying. Why not tell children how great our God is? Why not tell them how we are made perfect in Christ? And everything bad we have done has been created, credited to Jesus' account and paid for on the cross. And everything perfect that Jesus has done has been credited to us as righteousness. John 3.16. He loves, he gives. We, he gives. We believe, we live. And so question. And we still have some time, but are there any past mistakes that we need to get right with God about? Confession is the antidote. Are there any problems lingering in the family that need to be addressed? Don't be frustrated. Speak to them. Are there problems that have been identified that where actions are required to address those problems? Don't be paralyzed by past failures. Spend time in prayer. Consult with God. Ask some godly mentors. Then take action. Amen? That was lesson one. We've got time. Let's do lesson two. We'll go to Genesis 29. Um, the first story was really fathers and sons. I want us to now look at fathers and daughters. Anybody hear of a, a singer-songwriter by the name of John Mayer? Thank you. I, you know, some of you are like, I don't know if I should. Yeah, yeah. Uh, John Mayer was in love with a woman who was unable to love him back 
because she had daddy issues. And he wrote a song, which got Song of the Year Award for the lyrics. Fathers, be good to your daughters. Daughters will love like you do. Girls become lovers who turn into mothers. So mothers, be good to your daughters too. There are many hurting women because their fathers have walked out of their family. In this book, Whatever Happened to Daddy's Little Girl, he quotes um, another book called The Impact of Fatherless... By the way, he's African-American. Right? He, um, he quotes another book called The Impact of Fatherlessness on Black Women. And the woman's name is Jonetta, and she wrote that book, The Impact of Fatherlessness on Black Women. And when she was eight years old, her biological dad left them and her mom, and subsequently two boyfriends walked out also men who had played a father role. Three father figures in eight years. And she says, quite an everlasting impact. This is what we read, and I'm quoting. A girl abandoned by the first man in her life forever entertains powerful feelings of being unworthy or incapable of receiving any man's love. Even when she receives love from another, she is constantly and intensely fearful of losing it. This is the anxiety, the pain of losing one father. I had three fathers toss me aside. The cumulative effect was catastrophic. Must be dreadful to live like that, a sense of unworthiness, vulnerability, pain unable to receive a man's love, constantly and fearfully scared of losing it. Nancy often says that I am the first man to pursue my daughter, our daughter's heart. And unlike any other man who will want to pursue her, I am not seeking anything in return. So what example of unconditional love am I leaving? One of trust, confidence, assurance, or one of abandonment, vulnerability, and catastrophe? The author in that book says, you don't have to kiss all the frogs to find the prince. Don't have to kiss all the frogs to find the prince. Genesis chapter 29, verse 15. After, Jake, after Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban, this is Jacob and Esau. Jacob steals his older brother Esau's blessing. Mom favored him. Dad favored the other one. He's, he's now running for life because his brother's after him. Mom says, go to this. We got relatives living out here. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Let's make a deal. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Nancy and I have been together for almost 29 years, and it feels like only a few days. <laughs> Good transition. Then Jacob said to Laban, verse 21, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. <laughs> so Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Just take a pause. Get the story here. Imagine how you would respond. <laughs> you agree to work for seven years for this woman who you think is incredibly beautiful. There is this 
agreement, a contractual agreement. You work your seven years, you throw a party. The morning you wake up, it's not Rachel, it's Leah, the one with weak eyes, which is code for not as beautiful. Verse 26, Leah Laban replied, it's, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Here we go, let's make a deal. Another seven year, years of work for my daughter whom you truly seek. Again, wow, what's another seven years if, you tr if it only feels like a few days? Nancy and I have been married for almost 29 years. <laughs> and it only feels like a few days. Verse 28, and Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bildah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. All right, so Jacob's now married to both sisters, but we're not done with the story yet. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Check this out. Surely my husband will love me now. Surely. That's how she feels. That's what the, the definition of her son's name. Interesting how Leah's naming the children also, right? But it's based on her broken heart. Surely my husband will love me now. Abandoned, insecure, vulnerable to love. Surely my husband will love me now. Verse 33, she conceives again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. You see the pattern in the selection of the names and the meaning of the names? Again, she conceived, verse 34. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me. Finally, maybe now, now, not one, two, third child. Now my son will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. He's named Levi. She conceives again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Now it's going to get crazy. Verse 30. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous, jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Give me children or I'll die. That's the ultimatum. That's what's on the table. Jacob became angry with her and said, I am in the place of God. Who has kept you from having children? Then she said, here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her. Did you catch that? Sleep with her. Sleep with my servant so that she can bear children. I'm not able to, but she, maybe she will. Sleep with her that she can bear children for me and I too can build a family through her. Unfortunately, there was no prayer. There was no, hey God, is this a good idea? I can't have any children. No, 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 here, sleep with my servant. Verse four. So she gave him her servant Bildah as a wife. Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. God has vindicated me. Really? I'm not sure she had the right perspective. Verse 7. Rachel's servant Bilda conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. This is, this is, this is now a competition. She thinks she has now won because she's competing with her sister for children. It's not her children. It's her, her servant's children with her husband. These sisters are battling it out. Now, Rachel claims to have won because her maidservant maid bore Jacob a second son. Verse 9. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her, Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. Really? The women will call me happy. Really? So she named him Asher. Are you really happy? Verse 14. During wheat harvest, Reuben, that's the oldest son, went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants. For those of you who don't know what mandrake plants it's an aphrodisiac plant, okay? It's believed to help enhance fertility. This is what we found, which he brings to his mother Leah. 
Rachel then says to her sister Leah, please give me some of your mandrake. Wait for the response. Verse 15. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take away my son's mandrakes too? Like, ouch. Right for the jugular. Hold on. Let's make a deal. So they strike a deal. Similar to how Laban negotiated with Jacob for his two daughters. Like father, like daughters. Very well, Rachel said. You can sleep with him tonight in return for your, son mandra- your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob, in verse 16, came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to him, eat him. You must sleep with me. Imagine Jacob coming home. You must sleep with me. I hired you with my son's mandrakes. Like, this is just unbelievable. So he sleeps with her that night. Like, it's okay. Verse 17, God listened to Leah, and she becomes pregnant. She bores Jacob a fifth son. Oh, I'm just looking at time. This is going to go on and on and on and on and on and on. All right. Verse 23, she comes pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. All right, what do we learn as dads from this story? And here I'm going to quote bad dads of the Bible one more time, all right? This is what Warren says. He says, Laban taught that you were not loved because of who you are, but were loved because of what you did. You're loved because of what you do, not because of who you are. you got to earn it. Nancy, do you love me? I mean, for years we were dating. We've been together 29 years this year. 29 years, not married, together. 29 years this year. And at the beginning, I don't know if you remember, I'd always ask you, Nancy, do you love me? And what would you say? Yes. (laughs) Work with me. (laughs) Nancy, do you love me? And then I would ask why, and we didn't rehearse this. I'd ask why, and you would say? Because. And that drove me nuts. The fact that I still remember this, and this used to happen 20 years, and then one day Nancy found this card and said, I love you because, and it listed like 30 or 40 things. And it meant everything to me. As fathers, we should not love because of what our daughters do, but because of who they are. Wonderfully made in the image of God. Now, here's the question. Was Laban a manipulator? Yes, I believe he was. Look at how he negotiated and tricked Jacob into marrying each of his daughters. Now, let's suggest perhaps he did the same thing with each of his daughters when they were younger. I mean, maybe Laban went to his... Maybe Okay, so Laban tricks Jacob. Is it possible that Nahinal tricks his oldest daughter, Leah? Right? Maybe... Maybe he says, to, he says to Leah, you know, Leah, this is the only chance that you have to, to get married. Uh, father knows best. But guess what? Y- you can't tell Rachel about it. All right? Maybe he reminds her of the lazy eye. This is your best, this is in your best interest. Keep quiet. Don't say a word. It's, it's between us. You might never get married. If not, he taps into her insecurity. Best to have, be married. Best to have children. Best to raise a family. Question. What's wrong with living single if that's God's call in your life? There's absolutely nothing wrong with living single if that, single, single if that is God's plan for your life. But that's not what we have here. And, and there's this exchange. And, and how did he react? What did he tell me? Rachel, maybe he told Rachel that this was all his sister's plan. Maybe she's, he says, hey, Rachel, you know, your older, your older sister reminded me that about there's this law and this is the only way you can get married and we have to follow the custom and it was out of my control. So he washes his hands. He, you know, Rachel now has seeds of doubt in her, in her mind. And so Laban, although he is physically present, he's emotionally absent from both of his daughters. He was not a nurturing parent. Everything was transactional, like a business relationship. Always about what he could get out of it. Seven years here, seven years there. Didn't care about the welfare being of either of his daughters. He did not have their best interests at heart. No sacrificial love. All about earning and meriting and competing for love and attention. It was all about him. And this sows seeds of family dysfunction. And you see it. There's bickering between the sisters, whom I'm sure were also distant from one another. Right? As they sought the love of Jacob, as they competed amongst their children, even if the children were born by maidservants. So what's the lesson from this story? And we're going to wrap this up. Children should not have to compete for our love and attention. We can't play favorites. We... we, And no, kids, no dad does not have favorites. 
He loves each of you equally. And he loves each of you because. That's it. You're different, but you're similar at the same time. Dad loves you, all three of you, equally. My son's going to be listening to this over and over and over again, so I want my other kids to hear it during the week. He loves you just because. How should a father love? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, dads, take the word love and put your name in there. Dad is patient. Dad is kind. Dad does not envy. Dad does not boast. Ah, still going to fall a little bit short, so I got an idea. Now replace the word love, not with dad, but with Jesus. Jesus never disappoints. And he can give us the strength to do each of these things to both our sons and our daughters. So this morning, and I know I've taken time, but I deliberately took time. I wanted to look at some of the mistakes that dads have made in the past in order that we as fathers and parents do not repeat them. I began by saying that the relationship that children have with their earthly fathers will have a direct and lasting impact on their ability to relate to God as father. I stress the importance of a father's role within the family, how we need to be present. And then I shared two lessons that I hope we remembered. One, unlike David, we should not be paralyzed by past mistakes, but differentiating between hypocrisy and spiritual growth. We need to better communicate to our children how God has helped us even in our own failures, in our own past mistakes. And two, children, our children, and in particular our daughters, do not have to compete for our attention and our love. We love them just because. Remember our good and perfect Heavenly Father who loved, who gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. God loves, God gives, we believe, we live. Love is patient, love is kind. Try to be like Christ in everything we do and enjoy a good cookie with the entire family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may these words speak to us today, throughout the week, throughout our lives, as we invest in our children, so that we and our children can all be more like Christ. Thank you for your perfect and loving gift. We say thank you to our Heavenly Father, who never disappoints, who never fails, who's always there, and who loves us unconditionally. In your name we pray. Amen.